You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Is there a thread that gives us a connection to a superpower inside all of us? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. A little later, singer-songwriter Peter Mancini stops by for conversation and music. But first, some random thoughts and observations. I'm going to give you four numbers. 13, 41, 42, 99. How are they connected? We're recording this podcast shortly after the helicopter crash in California where nine lives were lost. Thirteen is the age of Kobe Bryant's daughter, Gigi. Forty-one is the age of Kobe Bryant. But these two other ages are not well known, are not interconnected, but they are interconnected in terms of life and death. The first one is 42. 42 is the age of a highly respected volleyball coach at Sachem North High School on Long Island. Matthew Di Stefano. He left behind a wife and three children. So although he's not well known outside of the metropolitan area, that death is also quite significant. And also, 99. 99 is the death of, of a family member called Aunt Ada. She was one month short of being 100. So no matter if you're 13, 41, 42, or 99, every death is significant. Every death has ramifications to your, the immediate family. Now, these two people I mentioned, one was 42 and a volleyball coach, one was 99 and a beloved mother, grandmother, and friend for many, still had major impact to the people in her orbit and the orbits of other people. So even though Kobe Bryant right now the whole country, not the whole country, let me amend that. The whole world is talking about the death of him and his daughter. And I have to be careful about what I'm going to say. What happens with people who are so famous, everybody comes out and says he was the greatest person ever. He could walk on water. Now, as a basketball player, yes, he was terrific. He's one of the best basketball players of all time. He has some trauma in his life. He was a flawed human being. He had some allegations against him in terms of a relationship with a woman that was not his wife. So he was a flawed human being. So when I watch all the coverage on television, listen to it on the radio, he has been elevated. Now, did he turn his life around? Yes, he did. But still, like all of us, we are human and we are flawed. No matter if you're famous or not well-known like the volleyball coach, at a high school on Long Island, or a 99-year-old woman who was beloved in terms of her media family, and you would never know who she was. But she was also as important as anybody else in terms of family members. Now, I remember years ago, I was—this was right after 9-11, and my sister was getting married in Miami, Florida. And because it was right after 9-11, I would not take my daughter down to the wedding— because I did not want both of us on the airplane at the same time in case something could happen. Now, nothing was going to happen. Probably right after 9-11, this was the safest time to be on an airplane. But I didn't want that to happen. And why do I mention that? Because the relationship between a parent and a child, a daughter and a father is so special. And what's so tragic about what happened with Kobe Bryant and his daughter and the other people on this helicopter when it crashed. They were going to a basketball tournament. I went to so many basketball tournaments with my daughter, starting in elementary school, AAU. She played in the Nationals down in Florida at Disney, all the high school games. I understand that relationship between a parent and a child, a father and a daughter. And why do I mention that connection? Because Kobe Bryant and his wife had an agreement they were never, ever going to get on an airplane or a helicopter at the same time. I think it was a helicopter because in the back of their mind, if there was going to be a crash, 
We didn't want that to happen to our family. And that's what elevates that relationship between the parent and child in my mind. There is a terrific series on Showtime called The Chi. It takes place on the south side of Chicago. And I remember one of the episodes. This is an ensemble cast. I think they're entering their third season. But one episode, OG, one of the original gangsters, comes back to Chicago because unbeknownst to us as the audience, he's trying to find out what happened to his high school basketball player's son who was killed on the streets. And this child was born out of wedlock. So we don't know the whole story because the story like a novel has to unfold from page to page to page. When he comes back, he's back in the neighborhood. He's respected, but he's been out of life in a sense, but still he's got the aura of being one of the original gangsters in that neighborhood. And a lot of young gangsters have taken the place. Now, in this cast of characters, a young man, he's probably still a teenager, and he already has a child. And he's a bit of a street hustler. He's selling Nike sneakers out of the back of a truck. And he's always trying to make a buck. He's living with his mom, trying to take care of his child. He's not involved in a serious relationship with the mother of his child, though he kind of tries to go back and forth. So those, all those permutations of the narrative going on. So he's not sure which way he goes, wants to go in his life. There's the temptation of the streets and making more money by doing things that are, to be honest, illegal. So he gets to form a relationship with the original guy, the OG, the original gangster, comes back to the neighborhood, whose brother owns a restaurant this young man is working in, so they kind of come together. And he's asked to do something, and this is where he has to make a decision. He's sitting in a car with the gangster, and the gangster asks him to go into a barbershop, I believe a barbershop, and carry something in which he knows is going to be shady. And he's sitting in this vehicle with the older gentleman, who could be his mentor, if you think about that. And he can't do it. He can't take that cross, metaphorically, and literally across the street to go in to do something that basically is a gray area or an illegal act. And this is the beauty of a relationship between a young person and an older person. And this is why this show is so special, because it's nuanced. It's not your typical either black or white, do this or don't do this. And they're sitting in this vehicle. And the, guy, and the older guy, the original gangster, realized this kid's not going to do it. And using the traditional gangster movies, he, he throws him out of the car and he curses at him and says, I don't, you know, you're worthless, you're useless. He says something so impactful. When I get back to the relationship between a parent and child, between Kobe and his daughter, and all the people who have lost lives that had leave family members behind. And in the same time frame, I have been to a funeral, the funeral of this 99-year-old woman. And you really think about these things and how it resonates when you go into a cemetery and you see all these gravestones and all these gravestones and all the inscriptions on the gravestone, beloved mother, beloved child, beloved daughter, whatever. And the gangster says to this kid, all that matters is on your gravestone, were you a good parent? That's all that matters. That should be on your gravestone. Not when you were born, not when you died, not you were a good talk show host or whatever. Were you a good parent? That is really something to think about. It, it, it got to me. Quite honestly, it, it got to me. Now, we talked about are there superheroes inside all of us? Now, why do I mention that? I'm going to make a reference to another television show that's entering its third season called The Sinner, starring Bill Pullman as a troubled detective. Now, there are always troubled detectives in novels, in movies, in television series. This is entering the third season of this center. It's on, I believe it's on USA Network, so you can find it if you want to. I think it's worth investigating. And each season, there is an arc and another crime to explore as the detective is face-to-face -face with an issue he's trying to solve. But he's also wrestling with personal demons in his, whole, his own life. And that's what makes him so interesting. So it's not just about solving a crime. It's beyond solving a crime. It's about figuring out who you are, where you came from, and what is your place 
in the world. And somebody described him, and this is what got to me in terms of having superpower, if any of us have superpowers inside us. And somebody said, in a tease leading up to the new season coming up of The Sinner, the detective's superpower, played by Bill Pullman, who's a terrific actor, is empathy. Empathy is his superpower. And that, to me, made me wonder, because what's inside of us? Can we tap into those superpowers if we have them? If we're lucky enough to have them, I believe we do have them. Sometimes it's buried deep inside of us. Sometimes it takes an extraordinary event to bring it out because our daily existence means we get up, we eat breakfast, we do what we have to do. Most people go to work, they come home, they take care of their kids, take care of their family, and it's almost that loop of Groundhog Day. Over and over again, the same thing. But sometimes there are extraordinary situations. We have to tap into something we don't have. For sake of the discussion, I will call it our superpower. Now, as you can tell, maybe I have too much time on my hands. I'm a big fan of quality TV, whether it's on cable networks, whether it's on broadcast networks. There's another great show there, and I, I like the hospital shows, going back to the days of ER and all those great, great shows and those great casts where a lot of people came out of and became really well-known actors and actresses, which is also true about the history of soap operas where people came from that kind of learned their craft in soap operas. A lot of actors years ago, Dr. Kildare, all those great series, learned their craft as secondary and tertiary characters, and then they move on. But you have to learn your craft in doing something. I'm kind of going on, but I'll pull it back right now. Uh, the good doctor, the, the primary character there, and he's a great actor, is autistic. And he's a, he wants to be a surgeon. But his, you, know, you, know, you know the phrase bedside manner? He just says things that come out of him, not thinking about the ramifications of what he's dealing with in terms of patients and in being in the operating room and learning his craft. He sees the world in his own kaleidoscope, in a sense. And it's fascinating that we're now seeing these kinds of characters, gay characters, autistic characters, coming on to the screen in the homes and the movie theaters and coming through all kinds of media-type things. And I thought about him, and somebody was saying, because how do you describe him and what would be his superpower? Especially when he has life and death in his hands when he's in the operating room. And he sees things so differently than everybody else because that is his, one of his superpowers is being able to see things we can't see. But his primary superpower is focus. When he has to, no matter what he's going through, in his personal life is focus. So that to me, as benign as it sounds like, because we all have to focus certain times when we do things, focus. Now, we talk about parent and child. I was there when my child was born and it was one of the most amazing things in my life. It happens every single day, multiple times a day in every country in the world. And we tend to think of it, oh, just another child coming into the world. I think one of the great superpowers that a man and a woman have is the ability to bring a child into the world. It happens all the time. You know, I remember when they started having fax machines. I said, I can't understand. How can something come through the air and come through a fax machine? Well, a lot of technology allows that. But still, the basic thing of a man and a woman creating something that is a human being. In terms of what we can do, in terms of biology and DNA and things in Petri dishes and cloning... This is still so special. And in my mind, in, I guess in my simple interpretation, this is a superpower. Now, it's ironic that I'm right here talking to you. And I'd love to have feedback for you in the future. You can go to the website where you'll get the information at the end of this particular podcast. I believe, and it can be a superpower or it can be a curse, verbal dexterity. I remember watching William F. Buckley People may not remember him. He's one of the great 
conservatives of all time, and he was on TV. And because he had such command of language, I think was his superpower, he could eviscerate you with a single word, and if you watch him on television, his own body language. Uh, you know, he could be totally wrong, but the way he said it and the way he commanded communication and his language skills, it was very hard to counter his, his argument. Now, I think one of the greatest gifts of all in terms of a superpower, whether it's inside of us or coming from somebody else, is a sense of humor. Making somebody laugh. Now you can do you can look into medical research and they believe that besides all the medications they can give you and all the things and in terms of exercise, one of the healthiest things you could have is the ability to laugh or give laughter to somebody else. That that to me is a really, really interesting connection. Now, I'm curious about how you interpret, if you think about that, what your superpower would be. Now, everybody, I, I can remember growing up as a kid, I was living in Bayside, Queens, and it was the, what they called euphemistically garden apartments. There were no gardens. They were just apartments in Queens, quite honestly. But it sounded really good. And there was and behind the apartments, there were garages where you could park your car. And I remember seeing a big letter S on a wall near those garages. I'm a kid. I'm maybe seven years old. And I'm saying, boy, I wonder behind that big letter S is where Superman is hiding out. Yes, I'm a bit of embarrassing myself, but that's the mindset of a kid who's seven years old. So everybody wonder if you could have a superpower, a physical superpower, what would it be? Now, nah, kids would say, I want to be, I want the ability to fly. But that's, that's, to me, that's really interesting because what would you pick as your physical superpower? Would you want to be stronger? Would you want to see better? Would you want to hear better? That is an open-ended question. And the other side of the question, the permutation of that question is, if you had to lose one of those abilities... What would you give up? If you had to make a choice between hearing, seeing, physical mobility, it's almost kind of like Sophie's choice. It's not Sophie's choice, but in a sense, the argument, the discussion, um, it would be. What would you give up? And, you know, I wonder if you had a choice, what, what would you do? And also, quite honestly, I work, used to work with amputee athletes. And there were world-class amputee athletes, gold medal winners in the Paralympics, national championships, international championships. And I remember one young man I worked with lost his leg to bone cancer, sarcoma. And if you asked him with all the gold medals and all the accolades and all lives that he touched, that was his superpower, going to speaking to kids at schools all throughout the country. He had an impact on people's lives. And I believe if you asked him, he was being really honest, would you give this all up to have your leg back? You know what his answer would be? He would probably say, yes, I would. Before we go to the break, one last thought. I'm also watching on HBO called The Outsider, which is based on a Stephen King novel. It's written by Richard Price, a terrific novelist himself. And... It, I don't know how to say this, but it, part of this is, once again, a detective who has a troubled life, lost a child in, in an accident, and is wrestling with his own mental state and having to solve an unusual, unusual crime. Is the supernatural an ultimate superpower? Think about that. After the break, singer-songwriter Pete Mancini stops by for some conversations and music. Stay with us. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
Got an old wooden cross It nearly got lost But it made it through The Second World War It still shines a light Through the darkest of nights Now I got it Hanging on my door Somewhere in Poland 1892 A woodworker carved The king of the Jews In the Blitzkrieg Of 1939 Tanks rolled through In the middle of the night But the cavalry charge Was in vain They were outgunned, bombs fell like rain The pastor knew they'd burn the church house down So he hid the cross where it would not be found I've got an old wooden cross Nearly got lost But it made it through the Second World War It still shines a light Through the darkest of nights Now I got it hanging on my door century of prayers and benedictions stored inside the grains of this crucifixion across an ocean and landed on our shores to bear witness to more unholy wars but the soldiers would not have died in vain If we realize we're all just the same Forgive them all and lay down our arms They know not what they do, so do no harm I've got an old wooden cross and nearly got lost But it made it through the second world It still shines a light Through the darkest of nights Now I got it hanging on my door It still shines a light Through the darkest of nights Now I got it hanging on my door I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to Artful Periscope. That is Pete Mancini. Pete got his start as the frontman and songwriter of Butch's Blind. And Pete, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Larry. It's great to be here. Now, it's interesting you reference war because the biggest film right now, may win multiple Academy Awards, is 1917. I don't know much about that film or have you seen it yet, but that song resonates because it touched upon a lot of important issues about... War. Mm-hmm. Where did that song come from for you? Um, I did see the movie. I thought it was great. You, yeah, what did, oh, did you see it? Yeah, people are raving about that. I know somebody has gone back three times to watch it. It's um, yeah, it's kind of a a thrill ride, you know, um, continuous shot, and um, it really was an amazing movie. To answer your question, though, the uh, the song I was um, rehearsing at a friend's house for a gig. He had this beautiful wooden cross on his wall, and it was it's just kind of. Um, you know, hand-carved, really beautiful piece. I'm not, like, a super religious guy, but I was like, wow, that's that's beautiful. You know, what's the story behind that? And he told me he bought it at auction, and it was um, basically the story of, uh, you know, which I told in the song about. It was uh, hand-carved in Poland in 1892, and, um, you know, was uh, made it through the Second World War when the Nazis kind of raised that whole area in Poland and uh, 
you know, the pastor hit it. And um, I just thought it was such a powerful story. And uh, the song kind of wrote itself after that. You know, you remind me of uh, questions I've come across for authors. There have been a lot of authors, authors on this program and also my television programs and other things I've done in public events. And they have sometimes, what they have is something called a first reader. Before the book is published, they take the book and they take it to somebody they trust for feedback. For your songs, do you have somebody you take it to initially for feedback to how they perceive what you've done? Yeah, and um, I, I did that with this song too. I always uh, I cut a demo, and um, I end up sending it to a few friends just to see what they think. And uh, you know, the response to this one was was pretty was pretty good, and uh, I felt good about it. Um, the song this was one of the songs that came really fast, so uh, you know, made a few edits, and then um, yeah, I hope to record it this May. Um, as part of a new collection of songs. Now, the first time is always special. I think about the first time I had sex. I should have raised my hand and asked for a do-over, so I'm not going to embarrass <laughs> you and ask you the first time you had sex. Thank but you. do you remember, unless you want to give us that, I don't know, raise our ratings. Who knows? We, we could go with this. Yeah, sex sells, I guess. It, unfortunately, it really does. But do you remember the first time you had a guitar in your hands? Yeah, um... Let me think on that. It may have been at a friend's house where uh, I think my friend's uh, dad had a few cool guitars. And, um, you know, we weren't allowed to, like, touch the guitars. But, you know, when he wasn't around, we would, you know, pick him up. I think he had, like, a Telecaster and a few acoustics. And I remember just thinking they were really cool. I was always really drawn to music. I grew up in a very musical household. And, um, yeah, uh, I played a few instruments before guitar, but guitar was the one that stuck. Well, tell us about that musical household, because in my house, the radio was always on, hence I was influenced by that, and the TV was on, too. So what kind of influences came from being at home? Yeah, my, um, my parents always played a lot of records, which was, which was great. Growing up, we had a lot of Beatles, Four Seasons, Eric Clapton. Oh, Clapton, A lot man. of classical music, and uh, it, was, it was pretty eclectic. And my mom, she played piano, and... Um, you know, it was just uh, it was just a good musical upbringing, and I don't know if they meant for that to happen, but it is what ended up happening. And uh, those those records, those sounds, were a big part of uh, you know my childhood growing up, and um, kind of informed the uh, musician I am today. So, I introduced you by mentioning Butcher's Blind. Tell us about that, and what was your relationship with Butcher's Blind? Um, I played in a few bands, um, and then you know, up to a certain point. Um, when I started getting really serious about writing songs, um, that was the name that I had, uh, you know, gave the project. And, um, you know, some of the same friends I had been in bands with, um, we, we formed Butcher's Blind. And uh, it's a uh, reference to a Wilco song. Um, so we were very inspired by those sounds, like by Wilco and Sunvolt, Uncle Tupelo, The Replacements. And uh, we ended up putting out two records and an EP and doing a bunch of great shows. And... Um, yeah, so that was the uh, pretty much the start of like being serious about music as opposed to just you know, you know, like a hobby. All right, so we didn't rehearse anything, but can you give us another tune? Um, sure, I'd love to. Um, so since that first song was a um, a new song, here's another new one. It's called Patchwork. Some days I'm the needle, some days I'm the thread. Some days I feel I'd be better off dead I keep stitching years together It's a patchwork, I'm told Keep trudging down the righteous path Till the day I grow Turning up fool's gold Searching for a diamond Found a hardened heart of coal I thought I held the hourglass I'm just a grain of sand I seen the error of my ways Gonna reach that promised land Some days I'm the needle Some days I'm the thread 
Some days I feel I'd be better off dead Keep stitching years together It's a patchwork I'm told Keep trudging down the righteous path Till the day I grow old times time and time again i've learned you gotta work and love in the best way you can don't buy the crooked politics of the devil and his activists bad actors on a power trip better angels looking down some days i'm the needle some days i'm the thread some days I feel I'd be better off dead I keep stitching years together It's a patchwork I'm told Keep trudging down the righteous path Till the day I grow old Keep stitching years together It's a patchwork I'm told Keep trudging down the righteous path Till the day I grow old that's Pete Mancini. Now, Pete, you did something really interesting for me as a listener. I'm a big fan of Jackson Brown, especially the album called Lake to the Sky, oh, because yeah. his use of language and imagery. And you're not Jackson Brown because everybody has their own style, but I hear your use of language and imagery. How much time do you think about that? Does it come easy, or is it just something you really have to work on? Um, yeah, I think it's songwriting is a skill like any other that you the more you do it the uh the better you get at it and um this new batch of songs i'm i'm really happy with and uh yeah jackson brown is is a big influence he's uh you know i love uh late for the sky oh me too um saturate before using right you know for every man just he's he's amazing um but yeah it, in terms of uh lyrics and imagery it's it's kind of like uh you know you start to develop tricks and you know little skills of lyric writing and editing and you know it, it's something that evolves over time and you know just doing it you know trial and error pretty much so in terms of the art and craft of storytelling which i explore in a lot of different venues what are the tricks of the trade maybe we'll learn something from that well you know it's like i said it's a, it's a lot of trial and error and um I, I wouldn't say there's any one set way of doing it you know sometimes i'll I'll just have like lyrics I'm kicking around in my head and um you know melody will just kind of happen and I'll I'll chase that down or sometimes it'll start on the guitar and I could uh you know write something that way um but yeah it's really just a matter of getting it down and uh you know documenting it so you don't forget it and uh basically just you know getting it out there as and you know working on it and just, you know, doing the work of it is, is really the trick, you know. And um, I guess that's, I think it's different for everybody, but that, that's how it works for me. I just have to get it out, get it on tape, and uh, develop it from there. I am an admirer of people that can play instruments. But if I had to go to the pantheon of people that I admire are the ones that can play the guitar, acoustic, electric I think a classical flamenco guitar is exceptional. When you think of guitarists, who comes to mind? Who do you think that you would pay to just watch play or even practice? Oh, man. And um, you can run with that because I'll, I'll turn the whole show over to you because I'd love, <laughs> to hear, I'd love to hear about guitar players anyway. Yeah, I, I have a lot of favorite guitar players. Um, I was just listening to Little Feet on the way over here. Oh, Lowell yeah. George. Lowell George, yeah. Lowell George, Robbie Robertson. Um, the band. I love Roy Buchanan. Uh, Gary Lewis of the Jayhawks. Mm. You know, um, I mean, there's just so many players that I look up to and, uh, and admire. And, uh, you know, in terms of guitar playing, you know, you kind of, what you do is you, you know, incorporate all that into, you know, your language of, you know, soloing or, or rhythm playing and, you know, you learn tricks from, from pretty much everybody and, you know, incorporate that into your own style. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, Jay Bennett of Wilco was one of my favorite guitar players. Um, yeah, so spent a lot of time <laughs> listening and learning, you know. I'm going to, Joe, take a, a quick diversion, and I'll tell you why. In the first segment, we talked about superpowers and who has it and who wants it and who can tap into that. And I think pets have a great superpower, especially therapy pets, because they can go into a hospital room and a person's going through chemotherapy or a life-threatening illness, and a dog can come in and just elevate them in terms of superpowers. Yeah, that is, that is something. So, in a sense, the guitar, I, there was a big story in the New York Times about an area in Appalachia which is where opioid is an epidemic. Opioid, opioid user is an epidemic. Mm -hmm. And they're bringing these people into guitar workshops to teach them how to build guitars and play guitars and refurbish guitars. And that's why I come back to this whole thing about what a guitar, a guitar can do mm -hmm. in terms of playing and everything else. Yeah. Do you sense that that there's something beyond just playing that the impact that guitar can have to the audience? Oh yeah, um, yeah. There's definitely some uh, therapeutic, you know, potential in there. Um, I do a lot of gigs at the uh, VA in Northport, and when I play out there, I'll always have a few uh, you know vets who are in recovery or you know um, going through some you know medical procedures. They'll always come up to me and be like, "Oh yeah, I got a Fender Strat, or you know, I got this kind of." guitar and we, we we always get to chatting and um you know i know there's a couple of uh, guitars for vet uh programs right. out there and um you know that's that's a great way to you know overcome the uh you know trauma that that these people go through by uh you know making these sacrifices for uh for our country and um you know it's something that really stuck with me the music you know is kind of a great unifier in that way you know it's it really is the universal language, as, as cliched as that may sound. Um, but yeah, you know, guitar as therapy, music as therapy, you know, for, um, you know, children, adults, I, I think it has like huge potential, of course. You know, a lot of times in this business, you something called an air check that you get to listen to yourself. Now, I was never thrilled with listening to myself. When you listen to your voice, are you happy the way it sounds? Do you think I could do something better? Or it's, you just got it nailed and there's no adjustments that have to be made? Well, um, I remember when I first started playing, I didn't necessarily enjoy hearing my own voice. And as time went on, like, that, that's definitely changed um, just as a, you know, result of just working at it and, and getting better at it, um, you know. I mean, I still won't, like, put on my own music just to, you know, kick back and relax. But, <laughs> you know, in terms of, you know, reviewing mixes and, you know, making tweaks like you had mentioned, you know, yeah. It's definitely... I, I would say I've progressed a lot from the first recordings we, we made in our uh, garage studio a long time ago. So. Well, when, when was that? When did you start recording? I think we started recording around 2007. And um, we ended up doing, a, like, a blues CD first and then in 2000 yeah 2007 or 2005 and then we we did our first collection of original tunes around that time as well we were in a band called the double stops and uh you know it was very like very primitive recording you know going back to listen to it it's, it's kind of funny now but there were some good songs on there and we sent it into good times magazine and, right. and we got our first good review so we were like super excited about that and um I, I didn't like listening to my voice then because, you know, we, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. So, but, you know, it, that's definitely, you know, you got to start somewhere. So, well, it goes back to the first question about how special the first time is. So, the first time you get a really good review, it really means something. I, yeah. I believe it's really, really, did you frame it? Did you keep it? I, I have it filed away somewhere in my, uh, in my files. I, I got to look for it, but I definitely still have it somewhere. Right, I'm going to mention some groups and some people and let you reflect on that because I think this is impressive. Blues Traveler. Uh, funny you mention them. Uh, Butcher's Blind, we opened for them uh, in Westbury. And uh, I became a pretty big fan doing my homework for that show. I'd always loved Blues Traveler, but, you know, they have some really good records. And, um, yeah, they're, they're just a great band, great New York City band. And they used to play, uh, they used to open for West Houston's band. Right. 
coincidentally enough, um, who uh, you know connected us. So that that's kind of another cool connection there. So when you're forming a band, what are the other elements? Now, right now, you're doing a solo set in a sense with us for Artful Periscopes. It's just you and your guitar. What are the other elements that are important for you to play with? Um, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of different people in in, in my solo capacity, which is uh, my band is called uh, Pete Mancini and the Hillside Airmen. And I've worked with a, a range of, you know, different people, and they all bring something different to the table, which is, uh, you know, they bring their own set of influences and, you know, their their favorite records inform how they play, right. which informs the music. So, I mean, it's it's kind of one of the great, you know, one of the great joys of, of playing music with other people, just, you know, because you learn from everybody, you know. In terms of a collaboration, do they have to kind of follow your lead or you follow their lead because it is an interesting mix and marriage when you're playing with other people in different kinds of events you know i've um i thought about this a lot you know in in my old band we kind of we worked on the arrangements together a lot um but you know i would kind of come in with a completed song so it was kind of you know a, a paint by numbers type situation where right. i would like you know be like here's the song these are the chords and then everyone would kind of come up with their own parts. I guess that's kind of that. That's the one thing that hasn't changed. Where I, you know, I'll write the song and I'll present it to the band, and you know, we kind of it becomes something new and different, um, which is you know that that's that extra element in there that you know makes it special. I think Ken Burns created and worked on a great documentary film about country music. Well, I watched every single episode. Now I, that's my my first preference is not country music. Uh, I love doo-wop, I love rock and roll, I love the blues, but I appreciate all forms of music. Did you get to see that film by Ken Burns? And I'd like to, if you did see it, what was your reaction? Uh, yeah, I, I saw about half half of it so far. Still still working my way through it. But uh, man, it's just, it's just amazing, um, just the rich history and tradition of, uh, you know, just music in, in America, like American music. Um, yeah, I was just blown away by the stories and how it's really just the story of, of our country. You know, these people, a lot of times these country singers that we, you know, idolize, they were just kind of, you know, poor kids who were right. like, you know, I don't want right. to work on the farm, so I'm just going to sing. And, um, you know, they changed the world. So, I mean, it's such an incredible story. I'm glad that he's telling it again in, in his way. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story and then we're going to do another song. So we're going to set that up. But I used to go to the Gaslight in Greenwich Village and see singer-songwriters and musicians. And one time, Mississippi, John Hurt showed up. Cool. And he had been he had been unknown for over 30 years. And there he comes. He's coming back after maybe 30 or more years. And I'm sitting in a small place called the Gaslight, which is very famous in Greenwich Village. I saw a Guthrie Duallis' restaurant there for the first time before it was recorded. Mississippi, John Hurt. Americana music and history, and I'm just sitting there taking it all in. So in terms of the Ken Burns film and country music, do you have a bluegrass tune for us? Yes. Yeah, so um, this was um, a song I put out on my record, Flying First Class, um, which I released in May of last year. And uh, yeah, this is a, it's a story song I co-wrote with uh, Buddy Woodward and Travis McKevney, and it uh, goes, goes like this. suburban streets Initials carved in wet concrete The fossilized remains of young and carefree days I'm back in Bakersfield Drove a John Deere through the fields of Kern County That dear John let her follow me bought the farm today I'd have nothing to give away I'm back in Bakersfield Bakersfield 
Bakersfield, the place where I was born and raised, the place I swore I'd never stay, here I am again, I left the city to work the land after the war, I had planned on doing more, here I am again, on the street again. Inside of me, like the armor kits attached to those Humvees. I drove them through the sand with my rifle close at hand, defending Bakersfield. Bakersfield, the place where I was born and raised, the place I swore I'd never stay. Here I am again. I left the city to go and fight a rich man's war. I had planned on doing more. Here I am again, on the street again. suburban streets sleeping out on the hard concrete the trembling remains of frightened foxhole days I'm back in Bakersfield I'm back in Bakersfield I'm back in Bakersfield That's Pete Mancini. I'm Larry Davidson. I can't sing, I can't play, but I can appreciate that. This is the Awful Periscope. Um, I traveled an awful lot over my life. I've gone across country many, many times, including once in 1976. I took a leave of absence from being a teacher, and I rode a bicycle from uh, New York to California. I've been in Bakersfield. Wow. I've slept <laughs> in the reps on the stop signs, places on, on hard concrete. I've done all of that, so when you start talking about all these places, for you, how important is traveling in terms of fleshing out who you are as a writer? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it's important to uh, to get out there and, and experience experience life, and um, that's when I, I write at my best, when I'm just kind of out there living new experiences, um, when everything's fresh coming to you, you know. That's so cool that you rode across country on a bike. I mean, that's awesome. I, I went across country with a few friends when I was, uh, I think, 19 years old. You know, we my friend's sister had moved to L.A., so she needed a car, and we delivered her car to her. You know, right. So it was kind of like a—we had a little mission. We had a lot of fun, and we, uh, you know, we saw a lot of the country. So that informed, you know, that informed my, uh, my writing a lot and, um, at the time, and— you know, I've done a lot of touring since, so yeah, traveling and, and getting out there, you know. And I, I only mention it because your perspective is so different when you're that close to the road. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was finally done, I went to see my sister was living outside of Sausalito. So um packed the bike up and I was on a bus traveling a little bit. And your references changed so dramatically because you're moving under your own pace and speed when you're doing this, mm -hmm. and I hadn't been in a moving vehicle for, for a while. And then I'm on this bus, and I'm realizing we're moving 60 miles an hour, and I'm elevated. My perspective is so different. So I wonder also, how does your perspective change based on your environment, moving or not moving? Um, yeah, it definitely, you know, it, it definitely changes your perspective. It's, um, it's a good point, um, you know, whether you're, you know, in the back of a tour van or if you're flying or, you know, 
Um, I, I think that's uh, you know it'll change how you think about stuff. Your how you interpret all the uh, images coming your way, and uh, you know if you're a passenger, it's definitely a little easier to uh, <laughs> to write and you know take it all in. But um, yeah, again, travel is it, it's important. Um, being on the road is just you know the road itself and everything that comes with it is, has been a big theme in my work over the years through Butcher's Blind and, and today. So you mentioned theme. I love Willie Nelson. Uh, everything too. he is and everything he represents, Chris Christopherson, all the outlaws and everything else, was also part of the, the Ken Burns documentary on the country music. He had a concept album called Redheaded Stranger. Mm -hmm. There's a narrative through the whole thing. Do you have any of those kind of albums in mind where there's a, a thread, a narrative in terms of every song is connected in a sense? We we attempted that on the first Butcher's Blind album where we had kind of a narrative or the appearance of a narrative going in. and That was the closest I'd ever come to, to a concept record. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love Redheaded Stranger. I love, the, you know, Tommy and, and, you know, all those great concept albums. It's, it's very cool um, you know, to have a story and characters, you know, that, you know, takes up a whole album. Uh, you know, that's something, I don't know if I would be able to do that, but I, I, I greatly admire people who do, um, cause it's a cool avenue to, you know, write about. All right. Before I ask you to play us out, if you don't mind, when I walk away from, uh, interviews, I then reflect on them and I said, you know, gee, I should have asked this question. Is there a question during this time frame we've spent together that I haven't raised from you? Something that's important to you, that information that you want to impart to the people who are listening to this podcast? Um, well, I'd say uh, we, we hit a lot of good points. I'm not going to tell you how to run your show. No, you would, <laughs> but, not be, you would not be the first person, so feel free. I'll take any kind of input. Um, no, I think I, I would say this has been great. I think we hit on all the on all the good points. So I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for a... <laughs> maybe I'll probably end up thinking about it like later when I listen back to this and you know, I'll text you or something. But all right. yeah, so I'll, we'll put a pin in that for now. One last question. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. You come home. You've been performing or doing whatever you do in terms of your social life. I won't pry what you've been doing late at night. <laughs> but you're laying in your bed and what kind of music would you listen to? Because I, I grew up listening to Alison Steele, The Nightbird, mm. on FM radio. Just the imagery of her talking about and setting up the song, and I would just lay back. And I've talked about this before. This is no surprise. It was just something that just kind of permeated me in, in a visceral manner. So if you were laying down 3 o'clock in the morning, you want to kind of relax, what would you relax to unless you just want to relax on your own thoughts? The first thing that came to mind, you know, with that whole image you set up, uh, was uh, Nick Drake's Pink Moon record, which is one of my uh, favorites. Um, but yeah, any kind of relaxing, you know, I'm, I'm not going to listen to Husker Du when I'm trying to sleep. But uh, yeah, I, uh, Nick Drake and, and Wilco, I remember, you know, I haven't done that in a while. Um, maybe I, I should. I should break out my uh, my headphones and, but um. Those were some records, Elliot Smith, you know, kind of soft acoustic right. stuff to to lull you into a, you know, trance to go to sleep. But uh... All right, well, till, ne till next time, I'm Larry Davidson, and Pete Mancini is going to play us out. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me. Um, so here's that, uh, I'm going to try that blues number. Okay. I usually play this with, uh, with the band, and um, we'll try it now. It's based on a true story. Um, from the Butcher's Blind days, and uh, it's called SLA Check. Friday night, Red River Inn. out front for a taste of sin Tonight's my night, I've been working all week This jam band 
shit is putting me to sleep I don't want to hit down by the river, man Play sweet home Alabama just as loud as you can Patching holes in walls since the bubble burst. Now I can't decide which is worse. Losing your home or having none at all. Some nights I stumble, some nights I fall. But it was ideas out, hands on the bar It's an SLA check, flashlights, cop cars Against the wall, I was under duress Till they pulled my pistol from under my vest Chief came in, he looked me up and down Said, we don't like your type in this here town IDs out, hands on the bar It's an SLA check, handcuffs, steel bars The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair And from